away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. And Matthew 15 adds, And she began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Back in Mark, Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And in Matthew 15, he says, But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. And he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And back in Mark, and he was saying to her, Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. In Matthew 15, Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And he said to her, Because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter, and going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. And verse 31 in Mark 7 continues, And he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, within the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hands on him. And Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his finger into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began to speak plainly. And he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. And they were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Father in heaven, this morning again we would ask you that you would help us as we would look to your word. Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would speak the truth of Scripture to our hearts. Father, I pray as I open my mouth that you would begin to preach. And Father, your voice would reach the heart and the mind and the soul of every one of us. Father, we pray the Spirit of God would be completely free to move through this building. And Father, to teach each one. Father, to challenge us as to how we're living. To challenge our faith. Father, to encourage those that are struggling and downhearted. To strengthen the weak knees and the feeble arms. Father, we pray that you would work amongst us this morning. Father, again, we pray that as we preach your word that you would revive us according to your word. You would strengthen us according to your word. And Father, we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We said last week that this, the topic of the passage in front of us is a topic of faith, great faith. And I told you about my heroes in the faith. I told you about a few of them last week. And how it's been my desire ever since I first came to know the Lord Jesus Christ is to walk by faith. And recently, having turned 47, it's hard to weigh up my life and where I'm at and the things that are going on in my life. I have a renewed desire to have that kind of deep, strong, living faith that trusts God through anything, that stands like the rock of Gibraltar. Some of these great heroes of the faith that we think about and hear about and read about occasionally, men that stood firm no matter what and continued in faith in God. 
I was reading E.M. Bounds, and he was saying a pastor's single most basic role in the church is to turn his people into a people of prayer who always have the Lord God before their eyes. And in all the things they go through throughout their days, they are constantly seeking the Lord in prayer, seeking the Lord in faith, and responding in obedience and faith. Well, this woman, this unnamed Canaanite woman, illustrates and demonstrates for us what it is that great faith is. Well, what does it mean? What is, what's the word faith really mean? We use it, we use it for a, a name of a person. I've met people with the name faith. What does the word mean? And we can see from Scripture in Romans 4, 19 to 25, we can see that faith is being convinced that God is able to keep his promises. In Hebrews 11 and verse 1, we can see that faith is the substance, the, the thing of things hoped for, the assurance, the the assurance, the conviction, if you like, of things not yet seen. Faith is also total dependence on God for the things hoped for. Faith in God, believing and trusting in God, is always seen in Scripture with a faithfulness to Him, a total dependence upon God. Those great men, the missionaries, the doctors, the preachers, and all those other guys in history, and even some today, They're marked, their lives are marked by a total dependence upon God. Faith is totally being dependent on him. Faith is being convinced that he's able to keep his promises. God has made promises to us in his word, and we're convinced that he will keep those promises for us. We're so convinced that we live as if the promises were already kept and already fulfilled. We li- it's like, a, like I told this story before, like a little kid going to the beach on Saturday. Dad promises we'll go to the beach on Saturday. So the little kid comes walking out on Monday morning. He's got the mask on his head. He's got the flippers on his feet. He's got a snorkel on the one arm. And he goes walking past mom and dad. And mom and dad are like, what are you doing? We're going to the beach. I'm ready. We're not going for four days. Doesn't matter. I'm still ready. Uh, Brady, when he was little, used to go to the, the place we went to summer camps. They had a beach and it was a, a lake front, you know, and he would go p- trucking down from the room. As soon as it was time to go to the beach, he'd have his, his inner tube and his, his rubber ducky and his, and his alligator floaty thing, and he'd go stomping pie. He was going to the beach. He was living, if you like, as if he was already there. And listen, faith for us means living as if God had already kept those promises. We're so convinced that God is going to do what he said he, did, he said he would, that we live as if it's already happened. I'm so convinced that Christ has saved me, that I live as if that final judgment has already placed me in the sheep pile, the saved group, and not the lost group. That's what assurance of things means. Now, Having said that, let's go back to the story. Last week we saw a number of things. I actually found in the, in the whole passage from 24 to 37, there's 10 things in here that speak about faith. And we are going to pa- unpack them all. Not all today. We did four last week. We'll do three today, and we'll do three next week to finish it off. The four we saw last week is this. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. She heard about Jesus, the words about Jesus. If you like, she heard a gospel testimony. Secondly, faith is proven alive by the works we do. She heard and then she came and she acted on the faith that she had by coming to seek Jesus out. If you've got the little handout in the folder there in front of you, you can track along with me. Thirdly, faith testifies to its reality by confession. She called him Lord 
son of David. She confessed who he was to her. She was his Lord. Fourthly, we saw that faith is exercised in persistent prayer. She kept asking Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. I said it last week, I'll say it again. She literally nagged at him. She would not let go. Like Jacob wrestling with the angel, she would not let go until Jesus blessed her. Fifthly, today I want to see these things. Fifthly, great faith produces true humility. We're going to see that in her life. Great faith also fuels unwavering obedience, and we'll see that as well. And finally, great faith is rewarded by blessing from God in the end. So fifthly, great faith produces true humility. I'll say it again slower so you can understand it. Great faith produces true humility. Great faith produces true humility. Mark 7, 25 and 27 and 28, we can see, we notice her attitude and regard towards Jesus. It was humble. She came to see him and she didn't walk in and speak to him as one speaks to an evil. The Bible says she fell at his feet. She cast herself down before him. It's a similar phrase to Jairus coming to Jesus and he throws himself down in front of Jesus and he puts himself in a submissive, subjected state before Jesus. She calls him Lord. Now I've said it and I've heard other people say it. In the New Testament, the word Lord can be considered like the word Sir. While I was studying for one of my exams this week, and I came across a little interesting text note about the Greek and about the use of it, and especially this word Lord, in the New Testament, whenever the apostolic writers, Mark, Matthew, John, Luke, all those guys, whenever they describe Jesus as Lord, they don't mean sir, they mean Lord as in its full extent of its meaning. The Old Testament, uh, the Greek version of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint, and whenever the Hebrew word is Yahweh or Adonai, They translate it as kurios, which means Lord. And so when she calls him Lord, she's not just saying, oh, sir. She's saying, my Lord, my master, my teacher, if you like, my king over me. She actually says, talks about her being in the master's house. So she is putting herself underneath him. She is humbling herself before him. Listen, great faith produces true humility. Why? Because great faith is total dependence on God. It's saying, I can't do this. It's like a little boy, right? He has a project on his hand, and it's too difficult. He can't put it together. He comes to his dad and says, Daddy, I just can't do this. I don't have, my my fingers aren't strong enough. I can't do it. And he comes kind of sheepishly to dad to get help. And that submission of ourselves to the one who can help, it's humility. She saw herself in a correct sense. Humility doesn't mean, I'm no good for anything. I'm just nothing. I'll just sit in a corner and hide my head and hope nobody notices me. That's not what humility means. Humility means to see yourself in relationship to God in a correct sense. So it's not prideful to say, I am a child of the living God. Because we are. It's not prideful to say, you know what, I'm a daughter of the king. You are. It's prideful to you say, I'm a daughter of the king, and so you better you know, do what you need to do to me, and you better think of me as something special. That's prideful. That's a problem. But true humility is recognizing who we are in relation to God. And she throws herself down. She falls at his feet and says, Lord, true or oh, sorry, great faith produces true humility. 
Now, something else I want to notice, and it's a little sidestep to the main point here, but it's worth pointing out because it affects the readership of Mark. You remember, if you were here at the beginning, Mark was written by, G- by Mark, sorry, about Jesus, and he sent the letter to the believers in Rome. So most of these guys are Latin Christian believers living in Rome. They're Gentiles, predominantly. So you say, what's that got to do with anything? Why did Jesus travel approximately 40 miles on foot from where he was around Capernaum, the Sea of Galilee, northwest, all the way up the top to to Tyre, to be in a house, to be by himself, to deal with one woman, to turn around and walk all the way back down again? Why would he do that? He did it because in his actions and his words, he is making a great promise. He's reaching out to the Gentiles, and even though he says in Matthew 15, I was sent Only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He is showing by his actions and words. He is in a sense making a promise. Listen, salvation is coming for the Gentiles. Now, I was reading in my readings this week through the book of Isaiah. And I was reading Isaiah 54. I had never seen Isaiah 54 like that before. And all of a sudden I realized that promise of salvation to the Gentiles is back in the Old Testament. It's so rich there. And Jesus goes to this Gentile woman and says, you know what? You're the first fruits. He heals her. He gives her salvation. I love the fact that she describes herself as under her master's table inside his house. She saw herself as part of that group of people that were included in salvation. And Jesus is making a promise. He's saying, listen. I was sent to the house of Israel, my disciples, they're going to be sent to all the nations of the world. And it's a little promise of what's to come, that salvation, the gospel will go out to all the nations of the world. Thank the Lord that it did, because we're all here this morning. I don't think there's anybody here that has Jewish background, but we're all here as Gentile believers. And this was kind of a little foretaste of what was to come. So keep that in the back of your mind and we'll move on. Um, The point is that Jesus came to her seeking for faith, and he found it, and he blessed her for her faith, and it's a promise of what's coming. To recap a little bit, faith comes by hearing the word of God. Secondly, faith testifies to its reality by confession. Thirdly, faith is proven alive by the works we do. She left, and she came to meet him based on faith. Faith is exercised in persistent prayer, she kept asking. Faith agrees with true humility, and sixthly, Faith fuels unwavering obedience. Now, we saw last week how faith is proven by its works. She heard and she came. Now, notice what happens next. Jesus, Jesus, in Matthew 15, he commends her for her faith. O woman, great is your faith. And then he sends her home with a promise. He says, go. The demon has come out of your daughter. The demon has left your daughter. And she's standing there. And, you know, she didn't have Skype. No closed-circuit TV, no email, no phone. She couldn't call ahead and say, so how's my daughter before I leave, just to make sure you know. No. She had to get up. She had to walk out of the house, and she had to walk however far it was back to her own home. There is a sense there that there is a distance she had to travel. And what she had to do was she had to act in complete faith that what Jesus had said he would do. He had kept his promise. He had cast the demon out of her daughter. She must simply trust him and obey his word. In the text, she is recorded as doing nothing but leaving him and returning home to find her daughter. Listen, faith doesn't say, what if? 
Now, in my life, I'll tell you right now, I feel deeply the need for my faith to be deepened and strengthened. I'm standing right beside you. I'm listening to the message just like you are. I've already spent a couple hours preparing it. And I know in my own heart, my faith, my faith needs to be stronger. And I'm no example of faith. And I kind of hesitate to, to use this, but I'll tell you one story I can look to back in my life about oh, seven years ago now. We're planning to leave Canada. We really felt that God was calling us to leave Canada, come back to Australia, and get involved working and planting churches. Praise God that, we're, that God's done that in our lives at this point. First major step in that whole process was selling our home. We put our house on the market. We were told how much it's worth, how much we'd get. And the market, real estate market was doing this. And we listed our house, and the real estate market did this. <laughs> Literally, it just dropped. And we're like, uh-oh. And then my brother-in-law came along one day and he said, Nelson, what are you going to do if your house doesn't, doesn't sell? I said, Dave, it's going to sell. Don't worry. He said, no, but what if it doesn't sell? And I said, Dave, it's going to sell. You know, the Lord will sell our house. We're convinced of this. But Nelson, what? And we had an argument back and forth. And I finally said, you know what, Dave? And whether it was faith or frustration or a whole bunch of arrogance, I just said to him, you know what, Dave? Faith doesn't say what if. And he went, and stopped. And our, fa- our house sold. And we got, I think, within five grand of our asking price, which was in that plummeting climate, was amazing. And whether God honored that statement, I don't know. I think he did. But listen, faith doesn't say what if. Faith is convinced. Faith is being convinced. Faith is having that assurance from God of his promises. Faith is what then fuels our obedience. How is it that we maintain steadfast obedience to God in the face of overwhelming odds and circumstances? We went out to uh, uh, Malia's birthday party yesterday. We're driving along and we went this horrible winding up and down a roundabout route that took us all over the map halfway to Queensland and back. And we finally got there. And on the way, we listened to a message by Alistair Begg speaking about Nehemiah. And I was thinking about Nehemiah as I'm driving along trying to dodge the cows and the grass and stuff. And, and Nehemiah is building this wall. And everybody is left. There's only a handful of people there. And this great big wall, it's huge. He spent 90 days praying about building this wall, and he had one obstacle after another, after another, after another. And what struck me about Nehemiah is he just kept going. He kept mixing the mud and putting the bricks on. He had a sword on one side, a trowel on the other side, and he kept building. He didn't say, you know, what if Sam Ballot really gets a big army, and what if Tobiah really does jump up on the wall and it falls down, and, and oh, you know, I'm not so sure, and scratch his head. No, he was convinced of what God had called him to do. This woman, she heard about Jesus. She came acting on the faith she had. She came in humility, knowing exactly who she was before him. She came asking and asking and asking until Jesus answered her plea. She heard his reply, go, the demons left your daughter. And immediately she turns around and she books it for home. She has faith that he will keep his word. Conviction is what enabled her to leave and return. Listen, Noah, in faith and obedience, kept building the boat in the middle of a flat plain with no water nearby, and he kept preaching the gospel for 120 years without one single convert. He kept going in faith and obedience. Abraham and Sarah, 
They kept trying for a child for 25 years until God finally granted their promise to them and they had that great child and they called him Laughter because she laughed at the promises of God. And every time she said, hey, Isaac, come here. Hey, laughter, come here. She would remember God's promise. She would remember her foolish response. And maybe she chuckled and smiled to herself as that elderly lady with this little tiny toddler following her around. Listen, Joshua and the nation of Israel in faith and obedience to God, they marched around the wall once a day for six days. It's about 1.9 kilometers around that wall. Seven times the seventh day, 14 kilometers around. That's 26 kilometers of walking over seven days, around and around and around. And I'm guaranteeing you there's some guy in the middle of the crowd going, why seven? What's wrong with three times around? Why do we got to go around seven times? But no, in faith and obedience, they kept going around and God kept his word and the wall fell down. Uh, Gideon, I love the story of Gideon, right? The, the, the scared judge. He's down inside a wine press. He's threshing the, the wheat inside the wine press so nobody will notice him. And God comes and says, there's a Moabite army out there. In fact, they've got all the other nation, friend nations around. There's a great big multi-nation coalition army. It's coming towards you. It's so big that the camels can't even be counted. Never mind the men. So you're going to raise up an army and I'm going to fight for you. Great. Gets an army. 32,000 men. That's not very many men. And God says it's too many. Get rid of 31,700 of them. What? And in faith and obedience, Gideon, even though he was a little bit afraid, he obeyed God's word. He sent 31,700 men home from the battle. They go rocking away, and there's just 300 guys and an innumerable host of men in the plains below, and they get up on the mountain, and they break the, the pitchers, and they hold up the, the torches, and they blow the trumpets, and they rattle everything, and they... Turn around and they destroy themselves in the valley below. God keeps his promises. Jehoshaphat. Remember the story of Jehoshaphat? Gets the people together. There's a great big army coming marching toward the city gates. He calls the whole nation together. Gets them into, the, into Jerusalem. He call, proclaims a fast and a day of prayer. And Jehoshaphat gets up on the top of the steps and he lifts up his hand. And here's a time. Here's a beautiful time for a leader to shine with some great encouraging words. And he looks up and he says, I don't know what to do. But my eyes are on you, Lord. I look at it and I go, that's faith. I haven't got a clue what to do, Lord, but my eyes are on you. That's great faith. And God sends a prophet to Jehoshaphat. And the prophet says, here's what you're going to do to to win the battle. Put on the choir robes. Take the musical instruments. And you put the choir in front of the army and you march out towards the army. And God destroyed them as they sang the songs. (laughs) I kind of wonder if they weren't singing, you know, how mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Maybe they sang, uh, our God is an awesome God. How great he reigns. That song we used to sing. They were singing the songs with their choir robes and the musical instruments. And God destroyed the army coming against them. In faith and obedience, they followed along. George Mueller faithfully, obediently prayed for God to provide the needs of the orphans. Over a thousand at times and save souls. He prayed sometimes for decades faithfully praying that God would work and he obeyed. Listen, here's something else to keep in the back of your mind. 
Sometimes obedience to the Lord is simply waiting for God to do his work. You're right. We're, the scriptures are right that faith and action, faith and works go together. But sometimes faith and obedience is waiting for God to do his work. But you're thinking there, and I can hear some of your thoughts going around. Not literally here, but I can, I can sense in your hearts. What if I don't have that kind of faith? What do I do? You know, I feel led to do something, and I, I waver back and forth, and I wonder what to do, and I hesitate, and, and I'm just, you know. Well, here's my answer to you. Pray, pray, and pray more. Seek God's counsel in Scripture. Seek God's counsel from godly men and women and pray and pray and pray. Pray that God will give you the conviction that what he is leading and calling you to do is exactly what he wants you to do. Keep praying. Prayer and faith go together. Prayer fuels faith and conviction. Prayer maintains faith and conviction. Prayer and faith together fuel obedience to God. By the way, you don't need to pray about everything. I mean, that's kind of a contradictory statement, isn't it? No. Listen, the Bible gives us clear commands to do something. You don't need to pray about whether or not to continue in an adulterous relationship. The Bible says, don't stop. You don't have to pray for confirmation. Do I need to pray about witnessing? Well, pray for help in witnessing, not whether you do it or not. Do I have to pray about being a part of a local church and fellowshipping and functioning together as a body? Do I need to pray about commitment to that? No, because that's clearly in Scripture. There are some things the Bible very clearly commands us to do, and we do them in simple obedience to Scripture. On the other hand, okay, there are also leadings of the Lord in our life and decisions that we have to make where there is no clear verse that describes what we do. Do we send our kids to Christian school or not? And that's, a, that's an issue. You're going to have to pray through that. Seek godly counsel. Seek the scriptures. Seek the Lord's face to have conviction and confirmation for God. Do we leave our jobs and work and go over to Africa as a missionary? Well, that's a leading of God in your life. You're not going to find a clear command in Scripture. You know, hesitation 6 and 12, leave uh, Australia and go to Africa as a ministry. It's not there. And you're going to have to seek the Lord day by day in prayer. Seek the scriptures, search the scriptures to know the mind of God. And you pray and pray and pray until you have that conviction that that's what you're supposed to do. And you know what? God occasionally takes his time in answering those things. The answers don't always come overnight. Sometimes they take a little time to get there. In those situations, pray much, seek God's faith. Great faith and simple obedience brings God's blessing. Great faith is also, number seven, the last one this morning, that faith is rewarded with God's blessing. Notice briefly, she returned home and she found her daughter lying on the bed. She found the demon was gone. Her faith was blessed not only with Jesus' commendation that she had great faith, she also received the blessing of the promise being kept. Go home. The demon has left. She walks on the door. There's a girl laying there sleeping in bed. I was going to say she might be a teenage girl because they seem to be always sleeping in bed, but I didn't think I should say that this morning. But she's laying there and she's asleep. And she got the blessing. And you know what? All the way home, I don't think she's going, oh, I don't know, I don't know. I think she's running along going, the demon is gone because Jesus said so. 
Listen, folks, sometimes we need to take those promises in Scripture, those things that God has promised us, and rehearse them to ourselves. Philippians 1.6, I prayed this probably more than any other prayer. Maybe, maybe not. But certainly a lot of my life, Lord, you promised. He who is faithful to begin the work in you will complete it. Lord, you said you're going to finish the work in me. Lord, please finish it. I pray it for you guys as a church. Lord, you are working in the people in this church. You promised that you would finish the work in them. You promised that you would make them into godly men and women. Lord, do your work in them today. Take joy. Do whatever you have to do in Joy's life today that he might grow a little bit more. Same with Joe. Same with Cameron. Same with Ron. Whoever. Lord, you promised. Do your work. And she went along, and I'm convinced she was just going, yeah, the demon's gone. I'm convinced because Jesus said so. She took him at his word, and she ran for home. And she got the blessing of seeing that thing. By the way, the time lag between being convinced of what God has promised and receiving the fulfillment may be hours, it may be days, and it may be decades. I think I told you before, uh, George Mueller prayed for a guy's salvation for 19 straight years. I think the guy was saved either very shortly before George Mueller died or just after he died. I think it was just before because he had the joy of seeing that prayer answered and he crossed it out of his book. 19 years faithfully praying that God would save a guy. Do we believe God is able to keep his promises? Absolutely, he's able. We convince God's able to keep his promises. I've shared this before. I shared again just a minute ago. Philippians 1, verse 6. I'm a little ahead of my notes. Hebrews 11, verse 6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And listen, the reward isn't just getting what God promised. The reward is the assurance of God's presence with us all through the way. The reward is the joy we have in living in anticipation of receiving God's promise. The reward of faith is so much more than that. It's knowing that Jesus hears our prayers. It's knowing the commendation that's coming. Well done, good and faithful servant. Great faith receives the blessing of God's answer. It may be years, it may be minutes. I remember praying about the building over there. We first started the church, and God answered literally within about 15 minutes. It came back so powerfully, it just about knocked me off my feet to hear God answer like that. Sometimes it happens that way. Sometimes you will faithfully pray for years. But God will answer. To recap again, great faith comes with hearing the words about Jesus. Great faith is proven by the works we do. Great faith is testified by confession of who he is. She cried out to him as Lord, son of David. Great faith is exercised by persistent prayer. She kept asking him to cast the demon out. Great faith produces true humility. She saw herself correctly before him as beneath him. Great faith fuels unwavering obedience to God. By being sent home, she went immediately and got that blessing. Great faith receives the reward of God's blessing. We are saved by grace through faith. But you know what else? Not just saved by faith. We are to live by faith throughout this life. Let me ask you a question. What are you trusting God for right now? You say, well, I, I, I trust God for my salvation. Praise God. I'm thrilled to hear that, seriously. But beyond that, it isn't just salvation by faith. It's living 
by faith. It's carrying on. And even though it seems like everything's against us, it's carrying on trusting God. We are to live our lives like little children who live their lives in their home. David doesn't get up in the morning and, gee, oh, man, are we going to have enough food for breakfast? Oh, no. Has Dad paid the bill for the power so I can turn my lights on? Oh, no. Is the water bill meant paid so I can, you know, brush my teeth and flush the toilet? He doesn't worry about any of those things. He gets up and he lives because he trusts his dad to take care of those bills. He lives a simple kind of faith. You and I are to live the same kind of faith-filled lifestyle before our God, trusting God for the things not only that we need, but also leading and direction for the future. If you think you work and you earn your money because you go to a job and you, and you do your work faithfully every day and they pay you, you're mistaken. Sorry. Every single penny you ever got, ever will get, ever have. It came directly from God's hand. He might use NAB Bank, or he might use your accounting firm, or he might use the construction company, or Kenworth, to pay the bill, to put the check in your hand. But he provides it all. Listen, this life is not supposed to be a life of self-sufficiency. It's supposed to be a life of God's sufficiency, where we trust him for everything that we need. I was really rebuked this week. I really was. I was re- driving down the highway going to school. I think it was on Tuesday morning. I listened to Paul Washer preaching in my headphones. And he said, you know what? You get up and you have all these kind of fears and, and stuff. And he goes, and immediately Philippians 4, 7 ought to come to mind. Don't be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, make your requests known to God and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's an NJA translation. I skipped over a few things near and there. But the point is this. We get up and we have those kind of fears, and I got them. I'm not joking. I got them. I got just like you do. And I was rebuked because I thought, you know what? How often do I drive down the highway going to school or going to work or doing what I'm doing, and I'm just rehearsing all these problems in my mind, and, and the Lord is saying in the Scriptures, you know what? You don't need to be anxious about any of those things. I've called you not just to be saved by faith, but to live by faith. Trust me, I got everything under control. Probably told you this story before. Uh, Daryl Gilliard is a fellow in uh, America. He had a church in Florida. Um, he came on, what's, hey, Dad, what's that old TV show with the uh, American preacher? He's tired politics for a while. Not Jerry Falwell. Um, there we go, 47-year-old brain just dropped one. Uh, his name was Daryl Geary, and he came on this program. He used to be on every Sunday afternoon, and this fellow was a, a preacher, and um, he was a, a black man. And he lived in, I think it was one of the eastern poorer states of the Union. And uh, his mom had put him up for adoption at a very, very young age, and he'd gone to the home of a woman, and she had, I think, 13 or 14 foster kids. She was looking after everybody's kid. And the only thing she had to take care of these kids was a Bible, basically, and a, not much income. And she taught Daryl the scriptures as a little boy. And she'd faithfully read and teach him the Bible every day. And one day, this dear old lady died. And he was put out, and somehow he slipped through the cracks, and he wound up living on his own under a bridge in the city. And he said he used to walk out to the end of this little bridge at nighttime when it was, the sun was going down, and he would say, Lord, what are you doing? What's going on? How, how am I supposed to live? Who's looking after me? And he said the only thing that he ever got from the Lord in those moments was this simple statement, trust me, I have everything under control. 
And Daryl Gilliard grew up. He went to school. He got a job. He went to college. He went to seminary. He started a church in one of the most um, difficult neighborhoods in Florida. Black-white tension was his absolute worst. He went into a 100% black community and started a 50% black, 50% white church because he, he believed that's what God wanted to do. And all through his life, as he lived his life before the Lord, in that most difficult circumstances, he kept this in the back of his mind. And this was his sort of his mantra, his song that he would sing. Trust me, I have everything under control. We're, we're called to live by faith, folks. We're not called to live in self-sufficiency. We're called to live trusting God for all those things. Committing all our cares and our worries onto him. Trusting Him. And I'm, I'm getting the rebuking that you're getting if you're feeling it. Because I'm so quick to hang on to all my fears and hang on to all my doubts and hang on to all my worries and not let go. But He says, you know what? Don't be anxious for anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, let your request be known to God and the peace of God will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Live by faith. This woman, if nothing else, she shows us what great faith should be. How's your faith? What are you trusting the Lord for? Trust me, God has ways of taking our self-sufficiency and just pulling the wool right out from underneath our feet and leaving us flat on the ground. Next week, we're going to see... Great faith that brings others to Jesus. Great faith that pleads God's work in others' lives. And great faith that has a great object. And that's that last verse in number 37. Jesus who does all things well. Would you stand with me? And we're going to close in prayer. Loving Father, again, we give you thanks. We thank you, O God, first of all, for our Savior. And Father, confess that we've been focusing on this woman's faith. And in one sense, we've set Jesus to one side, which is the wrong thing. But Father, we know she had a great object of faith, and we know how he responded to her. Father, for all of us this morning who are here, that we're struggling, some of us with what it means to have faith, struggling with what it means to follow you completely, struggling with what it means to obey you as an exercise of faith. Father, we plead with you this morning that you would work in the hearts and lives of all of us, deepen and strengthen and increase our faith, we pray, O God. Father, we pray, too, for true humility, a total dependence on God that removes our self-sufficiency and casts ourselves down before the Lord Jesus and says, Lord, help me. Father, we ask you again for a great work in Casey Bible Church. Father, we pray again that you would make us a church, a people who are praying people, people who are committed to living their lives with the Lord Jesus ever in front of us, always seeking him in prayer, always asking, always committing those things. Father, seeking him also to worship in prayer. Father, seeking also to give thanks in prayer. Father, thank you for the work that you are doing in us. Father, we thank you again for that promise of Philippians 1 and verse 6. And Father, we ask you that you would again today do your work in us. Father, do what is necessary each day in our lives to bring us that much closer to completion. 
Father, finish the work that you began. Father, we thank you for the truth, the reality that we can live in light of the fact that you are going to finish that work. That one day faith will give way to sight and we will see Jesus and all, Father, we want to see him so bad. We want to stand in front of him and kneel in front of him and see the scars in his hands and his feet. We want to see the one who was willing to go to a cross and to suffer and to die. The Father, to experience loneliness unlike anything we can imagine. And he did it that we might be reconciled to you, that we would never again know loneliness like that. Father, we plead with you for your help and your work in all of us. We ask, O God, for your blessing, and we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.